I'm going to invite you to turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 4 today. And remember, as we talked last week, we were speaking about the fact that this series, the second of a series of three, has been inspired by reading Watchman Nee's book, Sit, Walk, Stand, The Process of Christian Maturity. I'm not preaching Watchman Nee's sermon. It was a sermon that he preached back probably in the 20s or the early 30s before he was imprisoned by the Chinese communists and spent the last 20 years of his life in prison, only able to meet with his wife on rare occasion. And he had a tremendous opportunity to preach the gospel from the time that he first accepted Christ, about 1920, 1921. All through those years, as he grew in grace and the knowledge of Jesus, he proclaimed the gospel with great boldness throughout China. And he's remembered to this day some of his disciples uh, by the name, for instance, of uh, a fellow by the name of Witness Lee, who adopted a Christian name was one who enabled us to understand and to know Watchman Nee in a way that otherwise we would never know. And as you look at this next picture, you'll see a picture of him taken probably in the late 20s, early 30s, when he was a, a preacher of the gospel. And I would also encourage you, if you have the opportunity, uh, if you ever want to read a great book, this is it. it you can see it's not a very big book. It would take you probably a a total of about two to three hours to get through it, and you would understand his concepts of how he looks at the book of Ephesians in a way that's like, as I mentioned last Sunday, an executive summary. Uh, Being 40 years in the business world, I had the privilege, if you want to call it that, of writing some executive summaries to pages uh, of reports that we did. I remember one time in Niagara Falls, we had about a 100-page report on the petroleum industry, and I had to summarize that in about three pages so that the executive team, as they read through it, would understand what we had discovered and what kind of an impact it was going to have on our business at that time. Well, Watchman Nee has written Sit, Walk, Stand in the same way. It's a summary of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It gives us a great overview, an executive summary, if you will, of everything that is contained therein, some of the greatest doctrines of our faith, and then also some practical application. As you look at it, remember we said last week that it's really divided into three parts. And the first part, chapters 1 through 3, deal with the great doctrinal truths that Paul outlines for us in and really just pours them out in a great and glorious way so that we can understand our position in Christ. And so that's the first part. And the second part begins the practical application of those glorious truths in the way that we live our life day by day. And that is captured through chapters 4, actually beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and going through chapter 6, verse 9. That talks about the Christian walk, and that's going to be the focus of our sermon this morning, our Christian walk. And then next week we'll talk about our attitude toward the enemy of our souls. And that will deal with the remaining portion of chapter 6, in which 
Paul exhorts us to stand firm in our faith against the enemy of our souls. But this morning our focus is to understand what he has done for us, and it is important for us to remember that our position in Christ Jesus is instrumental and critical to our understanding and living out the walk that God has called us to walk. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1, if you just look back for just a moment at chapter 1, you'll see at the end of that chapter, Paul prays a prayer to the church for every one of us, to all the saints. And beginning there in verse 17, he asks that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These three things, by the way, are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the throne in glory, far above all rule and far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's Christ's position with the Father. He's in the heavenlies, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty in his glorious place, his work having been completed. And that is what we are to trust and rest in to begin with. Also, what is our position then? We'll find that in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, He, even when we were dead in our transgressions, by grace we have been saved, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our position. And he is reiterating that same thing uh, in other verses of Scripture. But I think we need to understand that before we begin our walk, that we need to understand our position in him, because that's instrumental uh, it, we sometimes make the mistake of trying to walk before we are resting in him and relying on the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. And as a consequence, that's kind of the reversal of God's divine order. And I think this is what Paul lays out in Ephesians. We'll understand that greater, I think, with greater clarification as we look at the rest of the scripture. The next visual that I have here kind of describes where we are when we are seated. And I wanted to remind you last week that when we are seated, we're placing our whole weight, our whole being, upon the object on which we are seated. We are at rest, in essence, because we are resting. Our weight is now transferred to something else. When we walk or stand, uh, we're bearing our own weight, if you will. We might be doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, we are, we are participants in that process. When we are seated, when we are set down, we are enjoying the benefit of resting, if you will. So, 
Watchman Nee kind of summed this up with a very succinct phrase. He says, Christianity begins not with a big to-do, but with a big done. Let me repeat that. Christianity begins not with a big to-do, but with a big done. Because we're talking about what Christ has done for us as he is seated in heavenly places. And we are seated with him in Christ Jesus. That's a concept that sometimes might be a little alien for us and difficult to believe. But we need to understand an underlying principle. That our utter and total dependence upon the Lord Jesus in everything we do. Remember what he said in John 15:5. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why we must be in Christ and understand our position in him. That's why we are utterly and totally dependent upon him. We cannot do the Christian walk. We cannot live the faith without the power of God within us. And that's why he grants us the Holy Spirit who seals us to the day of redemption. What does it mean to be in Christ? In Galatians 2.20, I think Paul describes it very succinctly. I have been crucified with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What a glorious truth that is. Also in Romans 6.6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer would be slaves to sin. And in Hebrews 3.14, I remind you again of that scripture we talked about last week. For we have become partakers with Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. We are partakers with him. We live by faith in him. So what does being in Christ really mean? It really means that we are abiding in him. In John 14.20, Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He also said later on, as he was talking to his disciples that night before his crucifixion, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in him is really being in Christ Jesus in every way. In 1 John 2, 6, he also says this, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner in which he walked. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's why it's so important for us to understand that our Christian walk is only enabled as we are putting our faith in him. Let's just do a brief overview of where we're going this morning. And briefly, that is, we're going to talk about, beginning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, our walk in unity. And then, beginning in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, we're going to talk about our walking in holiness or purity. He says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, and we'll talk about that later, but rather walk in a way that brings glory, and we're talking about holiness here. 
sometimes we don't like to think about that. But we also walk in love. And that begins in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And we walk in light in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. And lastly, we walk in wisdom, which begins in 5.15 through verses 9 of chapter 6. That's the outline or overview, essentially, of where we're going this morning. So what does it mean, first of all, that we walk? What are we talking about? The Greek word is translated consistently in the New Testament as walk. Sometimes it also is translated implying conduct or behavior. But it means walk. And it says in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He says in Romans 8, 4, walk according to the, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And in Galatians 5, 15, he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And in Colossians 2, 6, he says, As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. So to walk implies that we are making an effort on our part. It requires an act of our will to step out in faith. We're not doing it by sight. It also implies that we have a destination to which we are going. We have a purpose, if you will, in what we are doing as we walk. So this walk in faith is so important to us. And he also implies that we would walk in a very certain manner. Beginning there in chapter 4, verses 1, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, being diligent to preserve the unity of the peace and the bond and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he's talking about walking in unity. As you bear out and look at those first six verses, you understand that's what he's referring to. And there's a reason for it. But the manner in which we walk is important. As he said, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says in Colossians 1.10, Work a walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of God. So it's an important thing for us to understand that Paul's admonishing us and encouraging and instructing us to walk in a certain way. And that's in a a manner that is worthy to preserve the unity of the faith and the bond of peace, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So he also speaks with respect to unity about one, one body, one church, that is, the body of Christ. He's speaking also about the fact that we have one spirit who has sealed us to the day of redemption. We have 
one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It is important for us to understand that the walk in the unity of our faith is important. He wants us to have a oneness of mind and with an attitude of humility and patience, showing barrenness for one another in the bond of peace. He then encourages us to walk in holiness, to walk in purity. Now, you'll find no holiness or purity mentioned here as you begin to look at it in chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. He gives us instructions that we are to walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in that way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth, is in Jesus. So it's important for us to understand that we have a reason that we should walk in the way that we've learned Christ. We did not learn him as the Gentiles are living in the futility of their minds. We learn Christ in a different way. So how do we walk in holiness? And we can't go into all these things in great detail because if we did, we'd be here for a very, very long time. I don't think you would want to do that this morning. But nevertheless, there's some very succinct points that he makes. We ought to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. That's important. It says in Romans, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove, you might demonstrate the will of God and which is good and acceptable and perfect. We ought to walk in this way by the renewing of our minds. Also, we are to put on the new self, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are to set aside all falsehood so that we would speak the truth in love. We are to be angry, yet do not sin. And listen, this is a great place to uh, stop and make a comment. Paul preached many years ago, I remember a sermon that enlightened me on this, because most people interpret that we ought never to be angry, or if when the sun goes down, our anger ought to be set aside. We ought to be angry, yet not sin. So what did Paul mean by this? Sin ought to bother us. Uh, Sometimes all you need to do, if you want to get angry, is listen to the news in the morning. It's enough to make you angry, obviously. Because you hear those who are saying that what was good is really evil and what's evil is good. What's light is darkness and what darkness is light. And so they say that same thing in total contradiction to God's word. For it says in Proverbs, he who justifies the wicked and who essentially criticizes the righteous is an abomination to God. So we need to understand that we ought to have an anger about the sin that is bringing the world into darkness. And it's covering the world in darkness. There ought to be an anger about that, but yet we ought not sin by wanting to take some kind of vengeance or action against those to whom we do not agree. It's very easy to feel that way sometimes. Especially, it seems like this year brings out some of the worst in us. 
But nevertheless, the fact is that we ought to have an anger about sin which is paralyzing people and keeping them from the truth. Yet, not sin. We ought not to give the devil an opportunity. We ought to let no wholesome, unwholesome word proceed from our mouth. And lastly, we ought not to grieve the Holy Spirit. If and when that time comes when we make the willful choice to do something that we know is wrong, that violates the commandments of God, we ought to know that that's a grieving of the Holy Spirit. We grieve Him when we disobey. We have the joy of the Lord in our hearts when we trust and obey in Him. So it is important for us to understand that these aspects of walking in holiness are what brings us to the next point, and that's walking in love. He says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant, a fragrant aroma. We ought to walk in love. We ought to be imitators of God. And those points that talk about how we ought to walk in love are closely related to our walk in holiness or purity. And that is, no immorality or impurity is to be named among us. No filthy or silly talk or jesting is to be, will benefit any Christian. But rather we ought to give thanks. Immorality, impurity, or covetous is adultery, and or adult, idolatry, we should understand, and has no place in our life in Christ Jesus. No immoral or impure person, he says later on in that chapter, or covetous man who is an adulterer, pardon me, an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he also tells us, let no one be deceived by empty words. The importance of understanding doctrine here. Let no one be deceived by empty words, and do not be partakers with them. If we know someone's teaching false doctrine, we are not to be partakers. I think that basically, other than the fact that we have a physical move in our being sometimes, that's in the way we, we have to live and we have to move around as, in, our, in our times and in the uh, in 52 years that Rita and I have been married, we count it one time, we've been We've moved 18 times. But the only time we ever left a church is for the fact that we had to move. The only reason I see for leaving a church is if we know it's false doctrines being taught there. That's a good reason to pick up and leave. We ought not to be partakers with people who are teaching themselves. It says in 1 John 5, pardon me, 1 John chapter 1, 6 and 7, If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's First John chapter 1, 6 and 7. We ought then to not only walk in love, as we walk in holiness and we walk in unity, we need to walk in wisdom. Therefore, he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's so important that we understand that Paul commands us, essentially. Not just recommends. He's commanding us to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled constantly. There's always a need for us to be filled up to overflowing all the time. It's an active process that never ceases. We ought to also let our conduct be edifying to one another. We ought to also be rendering praise and thanks to God. We ought to live out our family relationships in accordance with the Scripture. And you'll lead through chapter uh, 6, and in particular it just lays out in great detail how husbands ought to view their wives, and how wives ought to view their husbands, and how parents ought to view children, and how children obey parents for a reason. And you see all of this laid out. We understand also that there is a different relationship in that day as he had talked about the slave-master relationship. I mean, Paul could have said at that time, though the Holy Spirit did not lead him to, Paul could have said, Let's abolish slavery, because slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. So why didn't he? But there was a better way, because when the master and the slave are members of the body of Christ, there's a completely different relationship. It's not a slave-master relationship any longer. And the same goes when we look in our world today as employer-employee. And that's somewhat the same kind of thing. There ought to be an attitude here that's completely different than the world shares about that relationship, even as it was in Roman times. If Paul had tried to abolish slavery, there probably would have been the greatest slaughter ever known to man through the Romans. They certainly could not have afforded to give up slavery, and they had no intentions of doing so. So consequently, the the gospel of Christ thrived, as Paul established a different relationship than ever existed before between master and slave as they became believers in Christ. It says there, and for the purpose, we need to talk about, lastly, the purpose of our Christian walk. And it begins with these two scriptures. There in chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It also says in Matthew 5, 6, in the words of Christ, as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When we walk in unity and holiness and love, and light, and wisdom, we bring glory to the name of Jesus. And we are going to, as a natural consequence of that walk, produce good works. That's what God created beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's what the Father has is glorified in the Son, as we do good deeds or good works in His name. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, He says, In all things show yourselves, to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified. In Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, 
Work out, he, exert, he tells the church at Philippi and the believers there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work with you, within you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. He's at work within us that we might produce the good works, the good deeds in our life that bring glory to the Father. And in 2 John 1.6, he says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you would walk in it. And in 3 John 1.4, he says this, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Our Christian walk is so important. That's what it's all about. But we must do it knowing and trusting in our position in Christ. We're doing it not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore, we do it for the glory of the Father. We ought to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling to which we've been called. Walk in a way that brings glory to his name. We, that, that's the indication that we're walking in light, not in darkness, but in light. Paul admonishes us, do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. We need to not walk as the world walks, but in the way that glorifies Christ Jesus our Lord. It is important for us to understand that we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that we might walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As Paul admonished the church at Ephesus then, so the Holy Spirit admonishes us through the words of God in this day and age that we would walk in that same manner to bring glory to his name. Let us do that for his sake. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is truth and your word is light. And you have asked us to walk not in darkness or in futility as unbelievers, but to walk in the unity of your spirit, in holiness and purity, in love and light, and in wisdom exhibiting the characteristics of what you have done in Christ Jesus to do good works, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ Jesus. You created us for that purpose. You prepared them beforehand that we would walk in them. And God, we want to bring glory to that name that is above all other names. So we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, that, Lord, you would lead us to truth, guide us into understanding, that these things might be applied in our life so that he who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory would be glorified in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We ask it in the name above all names. Amen.